Chapter 10 The Café Across from Yaquim Street Herman and Klaus returned to the Mercedes, and its driver took them through the streets of Harachani once more, before crossing the Viltava River over the Manas Bridge. Here Herman would swear that he could hear the sounds of Smetna's Viltava, and he wondered if this was what the composer once himself heard, even though he couldn't hear a thing. The music came to an end when the car reached the other side of town, and they headed north into Yosefov along Maisel Street. With his eyes as wide as they could be, Herman looked out at a district where he had lived for decades and where Jews had been living for a thousand years. For most of these, it had been a walled-off ghetto of cramped streets and the only place Jews could live in the city. Even after the walls came down and Jews were free to live wherever they pleased, there were upward of 20,000 of them packed within an area of what in the prior half-century had been reduced to a few dozen streets. But now Herman was the last Jew there or anywhere in the city. Though this didn't mean that there was no one living in Yosefov, Non-Jews were living there and had been even before the occupation. Despite this, the place seemed like a ghost town to Herman, so he now understood why there were no witnesses to the murders, as the district, which had always seemed so alive to him, had lost all this. Still, the three men found themselves stuck in traffic among the empty sidewalks, Slowly they passed building after building, with each evoking its own set of memories in Herman. One, though, was more vivid than the rest, and came to life when they reached the café across from Yakim Street, where he found himself and Anna passing away one of the many Sundays that they had passed there together. Herman and Anna were reading the latest editions of Lidove Novini and the Prager Tagblatt while sipping cups of Turkish coffee. They were arguing, too, over the latest doings of President Mazarik and Prime Minister Udurjal. Anna could see no wrong in either man, especially in Mazarik, who in many ways was the father of the country. They even named a train station in Prague after him while he was still alive. But Herman was critical of both. He felt the government was alienating the country's large German minority with both its policies and unfulfilled promises of autonomy, and he was right that there would be consequences to this. It would be the excuse Hitler used in 1938 to free the Sudetenland in the border areas of the country under the terms of the infamous Munich Agreement. This in turn would be the precursor to Hitler freeing the rest of the country less than a year later. Exasperated by Herman's arguments, Anna flung open her newspaper in front of herself and groaned, I don't even know why I married you. This led Herman to lower his eyes and mutter, I don't know why you married me either. Fortunately, she replied after a brief pause, Knowing's got nothing to do with it. He smiled at this, while recalling words spoken in a different time and place. 
He also reached one of his hands over the table and took one of hers. He found her touch soft and comforting. It also was as inspiring as the first time he had seen her face. Herman was brought back to the present when the Mercedes pulled in front of the closed gates of the Maisel Synagogue. Though strangely, he could still feel Anna's touch and all it had evoked, and this caused him to caress his hand in wonder. This came to a stop when Klaus told him, Your old flat on Alishka Krasnahorska Street was available, so I made arrangements for you to stay there. Oh, Herman mumbled, more than a little surprised. He was frightened a little, too, as he knew some memories were best unexperienced. Is there a problem with that, inquired Klaus? No, Herman insisted, but even he could hear the hesitancy in his own voice. Unfortunately, Klaus went on, there isn't much furniture there, and it's more than a bit of a mess. There will also be a guard at your front door whenever you're there, but it was either that or a cot in the office. These words surprised Herman, even if he didn't know why. It took him a few seconds before he realized that there was some kindness in Klaus's voice. Unsure how to feel about this, Herman reminded himself that Klaus was his enemy and that he needed to hate him, and he pretended the kindness away. He kept doing this as the two stepped out of the car, with Herman following not far behind Klaus. He followed him to an apartment building across the street from the synagogue, where Klaus pointed at a wall and said, The policeman mentioned in the report found Major Schiller sitting upright over there. Herman nodded, and he began looking around the area. Would you like to question the policeman? Klaus asked. Herman shook his head and muttered, I don't know this Harubi fellow, but I've known plenty like him. Attention to details is not their strong suit. Suddenly, something caught Herman's eye, a slight discoloration on the wall. So he walked up to this, and he found a collection of small bits of black fiber along the wall's coarse surface. What is it? Klaus uttered. It's likely from Major Schiller's jacket, Herman replied, after he pulled one of the fibers from the wall and showed it to Klaus. Does it have any significance, asked Klaus. Perhaps, conjectured Herman, while measuring the distance between the pattern and the ground with his eyes, it would appear that the killer carried the Major to the wall and then slid him down it. So, Klaus questioned, Herman responded by asking his own question. Why would he do this unless he murdered him somewhere else and then brought him here? Klaus had no answer. From the height of this, Herman went on while pointing at the discoloration. I can further say that the killer's quite tall, somewhere between 185 and 190 centimeters. Herman continued looking at the pattern. Soon he noticed something else about it and he contended it would also appear that the killer is right-handed. How did you figure that out? Klaus blurted out, with surprise he couldn't hide. A right-handed man would likely carry the torso in his right arm and the legs in his left, Herman noted, 
which would explain why the fibers are concentrated on the right side of the pattern. How does any of this help us discover who the killer is, grumbled Klaus. There's rarely a eureka moment, Klaus, Herman pointed out. When you discover everything at once about a mysterious crime, it's usually a progression of small clues that, when summed together, leads you to the perpetrator. And now we have our first ones. Well, if there are no others, Klaus replied, before he nodded down the street and added, The Major's widow lives over there on Staromach. Herman grinned at Klaus's last word, as he found it funny that Klaus had used the Czech slang term for Staromietzke Namnesti, which in English is called Old Town Square. While he had often heard this in similar forms of slang in the years he had lived in Prague, it was strange to hear it from an SS man. But then he recalled his college days with Klaus and remembered how consumed Klaus was by all things Czech, no matter how often he insisted otherwise, as someone who professed love only for things German. The Czech language, along with all its idioms and peculiarities, especially consumed Klaus, to the extent that Hermann once thought that Klaus had secretly wanted to be Czech and kept this from everyone, including himself. Hermann continued to grin as the two headed back to the car, and he recalled something else, the many times he had watched Klaus wrestle in college. He would often remind him of the legendary Czech hero Bivoy, in that he would lift his opponents on his back, much like Bivoy had with a boar on Jackdaw Mountain. Only when Herman returned to the car did he realize that the grin was still on his face. He realized, too, that it wasn't going to be easy to hate Klaus, no matter how much he reminded himself to do so. Still, he didn't stop grinning. He didn't until the car came to a sudden stop at Shiroka Street. There, the driver had hoped to make a right turn before making another right onto Pajiska Street one block up, which would have led them to Old Town Square. But instead, he was forced to make a left on the one-way street, and they quickly got tangled in a maze of roads that some believe were specifically designed to make foreign invaders lose their way. These same streets would confuse the Soviet army two and a half decades later when they invaded the city, especially after the locals removed many of the street signs. A few years after this, when my grandfather read about it in a book by Alan Levy called Robo to Prague, he couldn't stop smiling. A stranger would have thought that it was Christmas at our house. Herman was smiling in the back of the Mercedes, too, as it hopelessly approached the river to the west instead of going south toward the square. They might have even driven right into the water if Herman hadn't guided the driver to what was then called Sunny Trova Street, which led them eastward through the maze until they reached Parzyska and were finally able to make that right turn toward the square. How am I supposed to investigate a crime here when I literally can't drive two blocks without getting lost, Klaus growled, to no one in particular. I'm sorry, Herr Captain, the driver muttered. I thought for sure I could make a right down Shiroka.
You can down half of it, Herman told the man, but only west of Jatetska Street. The driver nodded, and Herman turned to Klaus and reminded him, You used to know these streets as well as me, if not better. That was a long time ago, Klaus insisted after turning from him. Herman responded by asking, Do you remember the night when we got so drunk at Uhinku that we set off to look for that legendary street from which there was no exit? Ulitsa Prokletik, Klaus mumbled, with just a hint of a smile on his face. The street of the damned. Along with the smile, Herman could see a little spark of the old Klaus, which made him want to see more, a lot more. He didn't even try to pretend otherwise. We would have found it if the sun hadn't come up, Klaus added, while looking as if he were recalling all the joy of that moment, and maybe others like it. We were so close to it. I'm sure of it. Klaus's spark didn't last long. It began to fade when they parked above the square and was completely gone by the time he and Herman began lumbering over the ancient cobblestones. Steadily, they made their way to the three-story apartment building where Frau Schiller lived while walking alongside the tracks that carried trams across the square during that period. They did with Klaus's head down and a scowl on his face. In the same manner, they entered the building and climbed to the top floor where at the first unit by the staircase, Klaus knocked on the door. Answering this was a servant woman, who brought them to the lady of the house, who was in the process of preparing to move, with boxes lying in almost all the free space. So she wasn't pleased that they had interrupted her. She was especially not pleased by Herman's presence, and she tried to convince Klaus that she had no time to talk. Please, Frau Schiller, Klaus pleaded. We are trying to find your husband's murderer. We won't take more than a few minutes of your time. I promise you. The woman sighed, but she acquiesced. She further asked her servant to bring them some coffee, and she led the two men into the living room, where they sat on a sofa in front of a large bay window that provided a perfect view of the square below, especially of the statue of Jan Hus. Herman gazed at this while thinking back to a much different and better time. When will you be moving? Klaus asked. In a few days, the woman answered while glaring at Herman. To be honest, spending even a few more seconds in the city is too much. The woman continued to glare at Herman. She only stopped when the servant came and laid a silver coffee service onto the table in front of them before leaving. With a bit of a sigh, and while pretending Herman wasn't there, Frau Schiller served what passed his coffee during the war to both Klaus and herself. This oddly brought Herman's attention back from the statue. I read your statement, Frau Schiller, he said to her, but in my experience... People often leave out small but not insignificant details from them, so I do hope you don't mind going through the events once more. What do you recall about the night your husband was killed? It was clear that the woman had no intention of answering Herman, or even recognizing he was there, but when she noticed that Klaus was waiting for her to answer, she grudgingly said directly to him, 
We were at the theatre of the estates to watch Don Giovanni. What a marvellous opera, Herman murmured, as he recalled how he and Anna had seen it at the same theatre before the occupation. Is Ezio Pinza still performing the title role, he questioned. Ignoring this, the woman told Klaus, right before the performance began, a lieutenant came up to my husband and led him off on what he said was an urgent matter. He didn't mention what this matter was, asked Herman. No, the woman answered as curtly as possible. And you don't know this lieutenant's name, was Herman's next question. No, she grumbled. Or what he looks like, Herman added. Only vaguely, she snapped with a shake of her head. I wasn't paying attention. That man was, I don't know, average. Average height, average weight. Unimposing, I would say, as well. Much like you. He was young, too. But they're all young. These details seemed a little too detailed for only a passing glance, especially for someone who wasn't paying attention, which led Herman to ask, Are you sure that you never saw him before that night? Unlike the other questions, this surprised Frau Schiller a little and caused her to think. She thought about it for many seconds before saying, Maybe. You're not sure, Herman uttered. I may have seen him before, she uttered back. This answer surprised Klaus a lot more than the question had surprised the woman. It embarrassed him as well. You didn't tell my men that before, he interjected. Your men didn't ask me that before, she argued, after she turned toward him. They just asked me if I knew who he was, and I don't. Klaus was just about to reply to this when Herman interrupted him by saying, Where did you see this man? She gave this some thought before shaking her head and blurting out, I don't know. It could have been anywhere. I realize that you have a lot on your mind, Herman told the woman. But if you could just try to concentrate, this information could very well lead us to your husband's killer. It might be the only thing that can. She responded by closing her eyes, and she kept in this way for many seconds before she opened them and muttered, It was at a party, I think. A Christmas party, at Colonel Mueller's home. Yes, it must have been there. We passed the man on the way out, and, and he nodded at my husband. Like he knew him, inquired Herman. Yes, she said. Tell me, Herman continued. What time did your husband leave the theater? I don't know exactly, she cried out. I had no reason to look at my watch. We're at a clock, but like I said, it was right before the opera started. 8.30, Klaus stated. It started at 8.30. Are you sure about that, Herman replied. I saw the opera maybe a week beforehand, Klaus replied back. And no, Ezio Pinza no longer performs the title role. The Americans, in fact, arrested him last year. What a pity, Herman mumbled, before turning back to the woman and saying, Frau Schiller, did your husband have any enemies? For the first time since the conversation started, the woman looked at Herman. She sneered at him as well and growled, You. Ignoring her animus, Herman asked, 
You mean he didn't like Jews? That's exactly what I mean, she snarled. What I mean is someone in particular, Herman explained. Someone who had a personal reason to cause him harm. Again, Frau Schiller turned to Klaus, and she told him, There were people who feared my husband, but no one would dare try to cause him harm. He was the strongest man alive and feared nothing, not even going to the Eastern Front. Herman had no more questions to ask, so the interview ended and Klaus said goodbye to the woman, and the two men left the apartment and the building and started toward the car. I'll contact Colonel Mueller when we return to the palace, Klaus mentioned, as they again crossed the cobblestones, which quickly exhausted both men, who were already well past tired, to see if he can identify this average and unimposing lieutenant. At the very least, he should be able to give us the names of everyone at the party. Herman nodded, and he commented, It would be interesting to know as well if either of the other murdered men attended this party. I'll find out, Klaus asserted as he watched Herman yawn, which caused him to yawn himself before he added, When we get back, I'll arrange for some guards for you and transportation to your flat. We can visit the second murder scene in the morning. Suddenly, Herman didn't feel so tired. Instead, he felt a little afraid.